And that was The Smiths with a track titled You've Got Everything Now from the album A Hatful of Hollow. This is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should, always playing the finest in indie pop and beyond. This week's special guest, because we always love a special guest, is going to be Wayne Hussey from The Mission and also one-time member of The Sisters of Mercy, who's going to be talking about life, love, poetry, and all that groovy stuff that happens when you're in a band, and also about his new book that's just been published and um, that's out on Omnibus Books. So I've got all that, plus much, much more. I'll be bringing the interview up into four easy-to-digest little segments for your excitement, but to get the party rolling, I think we should play your favourite and mine. This is Wasteland.
That's the mission, and that's a track titled Wasteland. That came from their 1986 debut album, God's Own Medicine. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, bringing you the finest in indie pop and sometimes goth rock as well. This week's special guest is going to be Wayne Hussey, one-time member of Sisters of Mercy and also The Mission, who's going to be talking about life in music and also about his new book that's just come out, titled 
Salad Days. This is coming out on Omnibus Press. So I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into four sections for your excitement and easy digestion, obviously. Um, And also, at this point of the show, I always like to give a little bit of admin. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram. Just go to at C86show. And also, all the shows have been archived and I've been doing them for over two and a half years. So there's a lot of shows And a lot of special guests. And um, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and also Mixcloud. It's all there and much, much more. But to get the party rolling again after all that exciting admin, I think we'll play another track by The Mission before the first uh, first bit of the interview. This is Deliverance. Oh, 
give me deliverance, deliver me. Indeed, that was epic, and that was also the mission that was the track titled Deliverance that came from their album titled Carved in Sand. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with Wayne Hussey, where we've been having a very long chat about this and that. And then we started the interview where we were talking about the independent scene, mainstream scene, and longevity of being in a band. And um, this is where Wayne has... Um, yes, this is where I'd been talking about most people lasting five years in music. Um, with him, he'd sort of been in various bands, then the, then the Sisters, and then The Mission, and has continued in music ever since. And this was Wayne's reply. Wayne, take it away. thing is, David, I, I got into being in a band and making music because I love music. I love making music. I love listening to music. I love music. So, you know, it's always been a privilege to, to be doing what, what I do. And what all the other stuff about being in a band and, and success are byproducts, and and you know most of it's actually quite ridiculous, you know. Yes. And um, but the actual making of the music is is what has always motivated me. So I mean that's what I do, and that's what I've always wanted to do. So why am I going to stop doing that? No, this is this is true. It's I suppose it's just that. You know, a lot of indie bands did last five years and then it went kind of like, OK, we've had enough and walked away in that, you know, to quote Joy Division, in silence. And then and then sort of possibly 30 years later think, oh, perhaps I'll get the band back together or, or make a bit of an album. But a lot, you know, I suppose I've just kind of come across a lot of those bands who didn't. Yeah, sort of... I, 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 I can see that. But on, on the other hand, I've also got, you know, friends who were in Depeche Mode and The Cure and... You know, and those bands have gone on to be global brands and huge global brands, you know. So it's not, I mean, also, you know, I know people like Paul Simpson and Wild Swans. Yes. I haven't seen him in, in years, mind. But, um, you know, so there's, there's, I don't know, there's all kinds. There is. It's, uh, it, there's some people that are more driven than others. It doesn't mean you're more talented. It doesn't mean you're better. It just means you, you, you've had... Better, better luck, better breaks, and and you you're more ambitious, maybe more driven. Yeah. Well, I I realised that you know I suppose two of my musical heroes, one was David Bowie and the other was Lemmy from Motorhead, and and they were both they're both the same age and they just stuck with it and there was no Plan B, whereas I suppose a lot of people do have Plan B, but you know and that's the well they didn't mean to have Plan B, but they just sort of after five years had no money, living either at home with their mum, dad, or girlfriend. Yeah. And, and sort of thought, actually, I, I think I think I, I don't. Did you read my book? Yes. So I I was going to I come think, on. I to... think I'm, I think I made that point somewhere in the book actually, that you know sometimes I've been quite lucky in, in my personal circumstances to be able to continue to do this. Um, it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I you know first became a father and all the, the responsibilities that came with that. Whereas you know a lot of, a lot of people. Um, go into marriage and, and being being a, um, a parent when they're younger than yeah. I did. So I think, yeah, I, I can understand that. And also, I think also Gary Newman wrote the, one of the forwards for me. And he, I mean, he's a really good friend of mine. And he, he, he could have been written writing about himself, actually, that whole forward would be writing about me. It could, just, it could have been writing about himself. You know, there are... You know, he's another one that's 
stuck at it. And, and, and he even, I mean, he went from uh, hot, uh, bigger extremes than I did. I mean, he, he, you know, he had two number ones and he was big. And then in the 90s, he couldn't get arrested in Britain. This is true. This is true. And now, and now he, and then he's worked himself back to be, you know, yes, a main player again. It's great. It is good. And how was it just coming to your the book that is going to be coming out this summer, spring, um, Salad Days? How was? How did you? I mean, just two questions. I mean, what was the? You know, what was the motivation of doing it? And how did it feel? You know, sort of putting this down and getting it out there from your brain onto page. Because obviously you must have had to sort of remember a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff that you might have buried has suddenly come back again, which I just wondered how that was emotionally for you. Um, there were there were moments where it was a little painful and there's, you know, there's stuff that I wish that I'd not remembered. Um, but, you know, it's part of the process. Uh I mean, it's I'm not I'm not the kind of person that regrets what I've done, because what I've done has led me to who I am today, and I'm I'm quite happy, um, you know I'm in quite a good position in my life, um, so that's you know if if anything had changed I, I might not be here doing what I do now. Um, the reason I started writing the book was because I I had been approached a few times about doing the book. But um, I'd been making records, writing uh, writing songs and, and making music. So, you know, that's what I prefer to do. But when it when we finished the last Mission album, which uh, came out in 2016, kind of I felt kind of creatively um, exhausted, a little bit, um, you know, like the well had run dry. So I kind of needed some time to kind of replenish that wellspring and it just seemed like an opportune moment to to think about writing the book yes you know i had a, a 60th birthday coming up and um i still have you know most of my faculties and i still had some memory so um, you know yeah and the, the thing is with, with memory it's you know we remember we all remember things i mean we you know some um how can i say this we like I, I might be talking with Craig and Simon about some something that happened in the old days with the mission, for instance, and all three of us will remember the same episode completely differently, you know. So it, it so there is so the memory color does color things, uh, but I you know I did talk to other people. I talked to old you know old acquaintances and old friends and stuff, and um, got their take on things. And one and, and it, what happens quite often is one memory. One little memory can start a whole avalanche of other ones that you know, you know, things you just hadn't thought about for years and years and years. And I said, most of it was, you know, quite pleasant and quite enjoyed it, you know. But there, there were, there were certain moments where it was a little more emotionally difficult. Yes. And the thing with writing a book is that um, I think um, I can. Uh, I don't want to claim that the book is completely truthful because I'm not sure it is. It's how I remember it. And other people may remember um, episodes differently to the way I remember it. At the same time, um, I, I've, I think I've written with, with honesty, if that makes sense. Yes. 
Yeah. I, I suppose a lot of the things, I mean, with that experience that you were talking about, you know, have, you know, everybody has a slightly different um, take on what happened to something that probably was three, four decades ago. Is that at least mm. it gives an opportunity to open up a potential dialogue and to explain one side and somebody else could then explain another side. I just wondered if there were many kind of friendships, relationships, and obviously being in bands, the, he probably had lots of them, where, you know, you've had that experience of thinking, of, of sort of talking about something that's been buried and then sort of realising, hearing somebody else's story. Because I know that quite a few people in the last few years, I think the last three or four years, there's been so many films and books coming up and people having conversations. I did an interview with Martin from The Chills and when they did a film recently, which I think is just coming out, and when he heard the other members of the band talking about their side of the, the, the story, he found it kind of like, I wouldn't say, it sounds a bit corny, the word healing, but it was like, oh, I'm really pleased I've heard what was going on for you because you knew what was going on for me. But, you know, every it's it's ability to sometimes listen and have a dialogue which can sort of help people process stuff and sometimes kind of let go of something that could be quite angsty. Yeah, there there is that. You know, I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing with the sisters and the, the relationship with Andrew um, was pretty f- fraught. And um, that's that's something that 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 there there were moments when I was remembering things there that it, that you know that were quite painful. But at the same time, it it made, did make me think. You know, um, I wonder how it would be if for me and Andrew to be in a room together again and to, to talk and to to you know just to see how we were with each other. Yeah, I wonder. Um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's it's like I say when we make records, it's just a record, and it, it's just a document of where we we are at that particular point in time. And this is basically just a book. You know, if I'd written this ten years ago, it probably would have been different. If I'd waited another five years, it probably would have been different. You know, a lot and a lot. As I said before, one when you have uh, um, one memory, it starts an avalanche of others. You know that it. it since I've finished the book, I've remembered other stuff, you know, yeah. um, that, uh, that isn't in that isn't in the book, um, and it, it really is a. I think it's it's much a case of what to leave out as to what to put in, in, in terms of uh, writing a book. But I, I I mean I think I just I think with with the book I just tried to be entertaining with it. Try to, to to I mean as well as it being my life story. I also try to to show that how how stupid um, some of the, the the idea of being in a band and the situations you can find yourself in how how ridiculous they can sometimes end up being. Indeed, in the old days, we used to always talk about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That suddenly got forgotten. But anyway, that's the first part of my interview with Wayne Hussey from the Mission, and also. The Sisters of Mercy, who was talking about the new book coming out, titled Salad Days. And this is going to be on Omnibus Press. Check it out. It will change your life. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be a track from The Mission. This is taken from an album that came out in 2016. The album Another Fall from Grace. This is Metamorphosis. Check it out. It might just change your life.
Epic Sounds, all the way from 2016. That is the mission with a track titled Metamorphosis, taken from the album Another Fool from Grace. This is David Eastall, the C86 Show, and um, if you're excited and interested in what's happening with the mission and Wayne Hussey, like I said, he's got a new book out called Salad Days that's coming out very soon, with a Z, 
that stays. And also he's got live dates that's going to be running through August and right through September, October and November. He's going to be very busy. So there's dates in uh, the UK as well as Europe and um, the UK and Europe again. I'm just looking at them. If you want to find out any more information, go to the Mission website, which is the Mission UK. Dot com And I think there's also Facebook as well. It's all there. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Wayne, where we had been talking about the, um, yes, being in a band and how ridiculous that is. And also about, does he recognise his younger self? And this was his reply. Wayne, take it away. Yeah, look, I look back at that that time, that person, and certainly in the early years of the mission. And, I, you know, and it's almost like watching um, an old film of somebody else. I mean, I know it's me. I have the memories, you know, and the scars to prove it. But it's uh, it, it 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 it's it's not the person I I am now. Yes, but, but that way. And also for those who are going to read the book, and I'm sure there's going to be, you know, you've got an amazing fan base. I mean, it actually does only go up, as as it says, um, end of part one, which is it's only you know the end of the 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 sisters, isn't it? So did that feel by writing the book and made, thinking, look, I can get that chapter, childhood, first band, sisters, that can be it, you know, full stop, the end, before kind of the next section, which obviously, you know, is going to be another you know, probably even bigger book, isn't it? So did that did that feel, as, as a creative process, did that feel a lot easier thinking that's going to be my narrative when you sort of, you know, without, spo- you know, too many spoilers, but when you sort of decide to tell Andrew that you're going to be leaving the band? Um, no, I mean, what happened was when I first started writing the book, um, I, I wanted to avoid that linear narrative, that that um, chronological, you know, the, the the life that most biographies and autobiographies follow. Um, I, I, I liked Bob Dylan's Chronicles, where he would take an episode and of a, a certain part of his life or a certain uh, experience and, and write about that. And it would jump around all over the place. I liked that. And that was my intention in the, in the first place. But I found, I found, I mean, you know, I found that after a couple of writing a couple of chapters that I was losing track of um, what I'd written or, or referenced in previous chapters because it was nonlinear. And so I, I reverted to the, you know, the whole, the old tried and trusted uh, chronological uh, thing, which actually helped me, helped me immensely to write, write it. Um, in terms of finishing where I finished the book, I had no intention of doing that way. I'm, I, you know, I'm not Winston Churchill. I don't, I don't, you know, see my my life being in, you know having four volumes or anything like that, or it's I just intended to do the one book, but I started writing and then I got to the point where, um, I had, I had a deadline, uh, with a, a contract with Omnibus to deliver the book by the end of October last year. And by the end of August, beginning of September, I'd only really just got up to the first year of the mission and I'd already written, um, about 150, 60,000 words for uh, a, a book that they only they wanted. They were asking for 100,000 words. So it was like, hang on a minute, this is this is already too much, and I'm never going to get the rest of you know another 30 years written in, in the space of a month. <laughs> 
So um, I, a friend of mine who had been helping helping me by reading what I'd written, uh, a journalist friend, um, said, "You know what? I'm reading this, and this makes a this. You could end it where you leave the sisters because this is a story of a, a young lad with big dreams, goes out and chases them, and it's one little failure after another." But each failure is a little step up. You know, it's being in all these bands and doing all this stuff, but never quite making it. And that that in itself is a really interesting story. So I thought, okay. So I went back to Omnibus and I said, this is where I'm at. Um, is, what do you think if we just end the book here? And, uh, they, you know, they owned an ad, but they said, okay, yeah. Um, so whether that, I mean, I have started writing the second book, I'm about seven chapters in, but whether I'm, or not, I, um, finish it really depends on how many libel suits I've, I get on this one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The excitement. You must, yes, it must be, must be very exciting because obviously, yes, you, the rest of your year is going to be some interesting correspondence, I guess, and not just legal, but just well, kind of... Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I know I know, there's some bridges been burnt with this book, you know, so <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. It is what it is. And, I mean, I must confess to being far more nervous about the publication of the book than I have ever been about any record ever made. I think it's, I think, I think it's because I, I'm a musician. Making records is, is what I do, part of what I do. Whereas writing a book is a byproduct, really, of making the records. And I don't, you know, as I say, as I said in the foreword, I don't really consider myself a writer. I had fun writing, but, you know, when, 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 I, when I read proper books, you know, it's like, wow, you know, I, I'm, I'm in awe of people that can write, you know, yes. write well. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I don't consider myself to be a writer. I just consider myself to be, you know, a musician that's gotten lucky through the years. And uh, been asked to write a book. As <laughs> simple as that. Absolutely, but you know, as you know, you, you've got a fantastic, fan, you know, huge fan base and very loyal. So people will be absolutely riveted to sort of read what the story and the narrative is. So obviously, yeah, there is definitely going to be a market. And then just kind of going on from the sisters, when you thought that's it, you know, you did your Ziggy Stardust moment and went and started the new band, did that feel like a, a kind of a huge weight off your shoulders when you thought, right, this is going to be a new chapter and a, and a kind of a quite a fresh start, even though there were, there were you know, Craig as well left? Well, I mean, we, we, we'd gone, we, we were leaving a band that was kind of all on the verge of being very successful. You know, we worked, you know, established to a point. We had uh, tours of uh, Japan lined up and we were, you know, going in to do a second album. So we were leaving a situation that was fairly um, healthy in terms of um, status and, you know, being, being able to work. In terms of um, the personal relationships involved, I mean, it, you know, every band has a dynamic. But and, and whilst it's no secret that Andrew and I didn't get on too well, it, um, the end sometimes justifies the means, you know. But it, it got you also got to think, okay, is it really worth? Is the end product really worth all the stress that you you know you put yourself through? And I think both Craig and I got to the point where we just thought, you know, this is just too much hard work, you know, not not uh, just trying to sustain a, a working relationship. That's just too much hard work. And um, 
I think, so when we left, it was with, you know, yeah, it was what we're going to do next. It was like we had, when we left, we didn't really know what we wanted to do. We know we wanted to form a new band of our own, but we didn't really know at that point who was going to do what, you know, we were um, anticipating getting another singer and I was just going to be playing the guitar and writing the tunes again. But, um, you know, events took over and I ended up becoming the singer by default, really. Yeah. But, um, yeah. no, I mean, you, you, you know, you can't plan this stuff. We, we had an idea of what we wanted to do. And as I said before, I've, I've always been quite driven. So, you know, once I set my mind to do it, you know, we, we went out and found the new, uh, the new musicians, Simon and Mick. We, and within, within less than three months of um, leaving the sisters, Craig and I got a new band together. We'd rehearsed a, a whole set, a whole new set of songs. And we were out on tour with the cult in Europe. You know, and I think that's testament to how driven we were. Yeah. And and I then mean, I was going to say, you, you sort of, you must, yeah, I mean, it came together relatively quickly, the sound, but also, you know, your your first album, God's Own Medicine, you know, featured, you know, a fantastic collection of songs. So obviously the sort of the energy and the and the sort of the creativity with amongst you must have been very good for for it to sort of all fit into place so quickly and so seamlessly yeah i mean uh, essentially i mean that those that that god's own medicine all this all the early mission singles and, and the first album most of those songs the vast majority of them were actually written um tunes i wrote and demoed for the second sisters album you know that andrew didn't want to to uh didn't want to sing on you know, so I had, a, I had a whole bunch of tunes ready to go. It was just a case of, you know, finding words for a lot of them. And, and you know, writing words wasn't my forte. Uh, I, I mean, I've gotten a lot better at writing words since the early days. But, um, it, you know, it, it, it was really um, something kind of new to me, writing words for the mission. Mm. Um, but most, but when we went in to do the album, most of that album, we've been out playing live for six months or so. So that we were well... Um, very, very familiar with those songs, you know. So it was. Uh, it didn't take us long to record it. Yeah, and I can, I can remember. You know, on a Friday we were always busily, or sort of committed to watching the tube on a Friday night about sort of half past five. And um, and I don't know if you can remember, but most of the audience used to just stand there looking at the bands, you know, looking rather bored. But then when the mission played, I've never seen, apart from possibly the Smiths, such a committed group of fans. So your fan base was absolutely with you from the get-go, really. Yeah, they, yeah, they were. Um, and, I mean, within the space of that, that first year, I mean, we ended up winning the readers' polls in Melody Maker and Sound, you know, we were... Best band, you know, shared best band spot with Queen. And I was, you know, second best singer after, um, I think it was at, uh, Peter Gabriel was number one, I was number two, and Bon Jovi was number three. You know, I mean, it was, it was an amazing ascent, really. But, and um, you're, you're right about the tube thing, but we got lucky with the tube because that happened in um, January of 87. And Britain was covered in snow at that point, and so the the not usually the tube had like their audience, the local, local people that came, you know, and and um, 
uh, just stood there. That's what that's what the the audience yes. was. But because um, most people, you know, couldn't get anywhere because of the weather, uh, the, the 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 people that normally turned up did, you know, couldn't get there. But most of our fans, a lot of our fans, had made the effort. You know, not not expecting to be allowed into the TV studios. But because because of the situation, the, the director, uh, the producers, and the director said, "Okay, look, th- they're here. Yeah, that let them in. You know, we got no we got no audience otherwise. <laughs> so we got we got lucky, you know, really in that sense because it, it looked amazing." Yes, it did. And if you haven't seen it lately, do go and sort of catch it on the YouTube. It's all there. The mission. The yes. It's um, Friday nights, the tube. We used to love it. But um, yes, I do remember the mission's kind of performance alongside the Smiths as being the most exciting ever on that exci- um, that particular programme. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be a bit more music before more quality chat. This is Garden of Delight.
There you go. That's God's, um, from the album God's Own Medicine, that is Garden of Delight. This being the mission, obviously. This is David Eastall, the C86 show. I know I keep saying that. But uh, this week's special guest, Wayne Hussey, talking about life in music and also his new book that's coming out, Salad Days. Check it out. Buy it. It'll change your life. But this is going to be the third part of my interview where I um, started to talk about the creative process and the tricky second album that sometimes can tri- trip bands up. Wayne? Was it a tricky moment? Not really. The, le- the second album, I mean, we had the first album, as I said before, a lot of those songs were, we were playing live, or, you know, songs were tunes that I'd written for the sisters, in fact. The second album, we had very little left. We'd been out on tour for, I don't know, well over a year or so. So I, I haven't really gotten much together in terms of songs for the second album. Um, we had a little bit of time off. Uh, so I went to the Black Mountains, in um, on the border of England and Wales, and rented uh, a flat in an old uh, monastery there, and there was no telephone, no television or anything like that. So I just spent a couple of wee- weeks writing tunes, um, and then took them to the band. We rehearsed them, and then we went into the studio, which was a totally different process to how we we did the first album. And I think in hindsight, you know, when I listen to it. I have occasion to listen to it now. It sounds like it to me. It sounds like the songs, we took a long, lot longer making that record. Um, and I think it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a record that reaches for the stars and doesn't quite make it, in my opinion. It's flawed. There's some great moments, but it's, it's also kind of uh, quite flabby in places, I think. Yes, and this is this was also you had John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin fame as well. So, had you felt like you were stepping into a the rock royalty period? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, with with every every step you take, you know, it's not it's not me. It's not like you you know it all happens to you overnight. It, it comes in steps, you know. So by the time you know, like the first album came out, and you know, you know, we were. Hanging out with Bono and Iggy Pop and Susie and the rest of it, you know, and it was like, wow, I'm not, you know, I got into music because I'm a fan of music. So I was hanging around with people who are, you know, I really, I was fans, fans. Yes. And so, you know, it it just seemed like a natural next step to, you know, work work with somebody from Led Zeppelin, a big Zeppelin fan. And then, as bizarre as that sounds, but it's it's that's the thing. It it, it didn't seem. It, it, I mean, look back now, and it was a big deal. But at the time, it didn't seem or feel like such a big deal. Yes, because one thing that I've noticed, the you know, like I like I was saying earlier, you know, most bands have that five year narrative, but. There is also the other thing that happened, which I've sort of noticed as well, was that um, the musical world changes, you know, and there was that sort of period from sort of 87 where, you know, a lot of those bands kind of, the, da- the da- dance scene started to appear and rave culture. And so, you know, the Happy Monday, Stone Roses, Primal Scream, sort of able to s- sort of get into that. And those bands who were a bit more jingly jangly just went, oh, actually, we've had it. You know, we're not part of this scene and we've done five years, got no money. Let's forget it now. And and then the next scene comes along. That's the grunge scene. And then there's the Brit pop scene. But, you know, you were 
you were one of those bands who didn't seem to need or worry particularly about those kind of musical fashions that that often you know it's like it's like some sort of illness isn't it or, or disease I suppose not an illness where it kind of something comes along it just wipes out the next load of bands who've been around for for a few years and then the new kids on the block well yeah I, I think I think though that, that any bands any 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 band that um kind of that are any good actually transcend those movements uh, and the, I mean uh, I, I make again I make the point in the book about goth bands I mean when when that movement started it wasn't called goth and anything went you know it was a lot more open than it's become now goth has become a lot more um, uniform in terms of um, what people wear and what people listen to and, and the whole lifestyle thing. But back then, you know, it was, it was a totally different thing. So, um, even, even at the beginning there, there were the music, musically, there were the bands were always a little more forward thinking, you know, trying different things. And I think, uh, it was a lot more, um, open and flexible then. And it is, and it's become, Goth inverted commas. Yes. Um, so, so we never we you know with the sisters or with the mission we never particularly aligned ourselves with that movement. Um, even though we still are, we still are seen as a goth band, you know, in, 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 in a lot of quarters. But um, I have no problem with with that. You know, really no problem with that. If that's how we're perceived, that's how we're perceived. There's not yes. a lot you can do about it. You know. No, but um, but in yeah, an, in I did, but it was quite but, lucky. Because, sorry, I was going to say we 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 transcended it really, and and those the bands that survive are the bands that transcend the scene that they came from. If they don't, they will die with the scene. Yes. Yeah, and it is quite, <clears throat> and I suppose what is quite interesting that some bands. Well, again, I think personally, I think most bands don't. You know, it's almost like you could see the problem that a few people had where they it was like how, you know, it was like with David Bowie, you know, he did his 60s stuff, which was like pretty forgettable, then the 70s, which was good. But then he made that kind of the low album, you know, which is kind of like, wow, that's pretty amazing, David. You know, you've really gone way out there. And and some people are able to do that, whereas others, you just couldn't imagine Kirk, you know, you wonder where Kirk Cobain would have gone after you know, he's kind of lost. Well, again, I make the point in the book about Ian Curtis and Joy Division. I mean, if Ian Curtis had, had, had not died, what would have happened to Joy Division? I, 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 you know, New Order wouldn't have existed, and and I'm 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 not I'm not convinced that Joy Division would become um, the phenomenon that they they have become. Yes, you know? this is true. I mean, it, I mean. Don't get me wrong, Joy Division were great, and Ian Curtis was a great lyricist, and uh, Closer is a fantastic album. You know, they were great. There's no doubt about that. But again, I make the point in the book about the way that he's been lionized since because of his suicide. You know, I think, I think in, in some respects, every generation needs its own martyr, for want of a better word. Um, and Ian Curtis was ours. Uh, by virtue of you know the lyrical content of Closer and and the nature of his death, but um, I, I'm not I'm not I'm not sure what would have happened if if that you know if he if he had survived. Yes. Carried on. 
And I was going to say, I mean, your your work rate, you know, both albums, tours, was absolutely phenomenal for the next, you know, <laughs> well, well into the 90s. Um, and then, then after Blue, you had a bit of a, there was a bit more of a break. Did Did you sort of at that stage think, God, we all need to have a bit of a rest. Well, no. After Blue, um, I, I um, disbanded the band and moved to California. Actually, I had no intention of going back to the band at that point. Um, I think it just what had happened. I mean, I think just gradually got worn, worn down by the fact that um, we'd lost momentum for sure as a band. And we had lineup changes, and it, it just become a little wearisome. And I think we we had debts as a band, and which I, I knew that if I packed it in earlier, then I would, you know, leave leave unpaid debts, and I didn't want to do that. So I ca- I can carry it on with the band, um, to enable to pay off those debts. And once that was done, then I moved to California with my my wife at the time. And uh, the thing I wanted to do was to try and get into doing film music, but uh, that didn't turn out well for me. And uh, the thing was, I started missing being in a band. <laughs> you know, with a couple of years, it was okay. I, I, um, I, I miss playing, going out on tour and being in a band. So, you know, the opportunity came to put the band back together, which we did, and went out on tour. And then one thing led to another, and we started making records again. Yes. Yeah. I- and then I, that- I, the, the thing is, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I still work incredibly hard. I mean, um, up until uh, another Fall from Grace, um, which was released in 2016. I think I was releasing a, a, an album a year for about five or six, seven years, you know, various projects that I was involved in. So it, it's even more prolific than the early days, to be honest. In that, yes. in that sense, that plus, you know, still tour a lot. I'm doing another big tour later in the year solo. And that's my third part of my interview with Wayne Hussey from the band The Mission. And obviously, you can find more information on various websites. But I think we'll play some more music and then a bit more chat. But anyway, The Mission, they are still sounding amazing to this day. Take it away, Wayne.
More chart bound sounds from the mission that is Severina from the album God's Own Medicine. Hello, David Eastall here, the C86 show. If you want to contact me, I do sound a bit desperate now, but um, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86 show. And also, all the shows have been podcast. Um, so you can listen to them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, and which one did I miss? Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. There you go. There was four. I got there in the end. It's age. Sometimes you forget these things. Anyway, this is going to be the fourth part of my interview with Wayne Hussey. A huge thank you for giving me the time for this, uh, where I was um, talking about the importance of his relationship with working with Craig Adams. And this was his reply. Wayne? How critical is that relationship? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, Craig and I have always got on very well <clears throat> from the very, you know, very beginning when I was joined the Sisters of Mercy. It was him and I that gravitated to each other. You know, Andrew and Mark were squabbling. We let them get on with their squabbling. Andrew was reclusive. Mark had a girlfriend. So it was Craig and I. So we'd go out and, you know, be best buddies. Um, and that just evolved. I mean, obviously, we've had our ups and downs as well. You know, Craig and I, there were a period of about eight, nine years where we didn't actually speak to each other um, very much. But, you know, it's it's stupid to harbour um, stuff like that for that long, really. You know, waste of time and energy. Uh, but, and in, in some respects, I think I, I, I've always thought of Craig as being... A, 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 I can't say a moral compass because he's not he's not particularly moral. But in terms of of, be, of the band and, and the, the 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 output of the band, he's been a moral compass in some you know he's been my conscience in some some respects. I think you yes. know if if yes. if, if I'm um, if I'm push getting a bit silly with something, he'll just give me a look and I will think okay yeah all right I know. <laughs> And obviously, you know, talking of that, you know, the, the the 2016 album, Another Fall from Grace, that must have been enjoyable working with people like Gary Newman, also Julianne Regan as well, who was in All About Eve. Did that also have a feeling of, like, joy about it? Uh, to be honest with you, most of that album I, I, I did in isolation. I did here in Brazil on my own. Um, I would send the tracks out to you know, the rest of the band, and they would add add little bits and pieces, but most of it was done here. And, um, yeah, as I say, done on my own. Um, Gary, Gary, I mean, uh, Gary, well, the same with Gary, Martin, Vila, Julianne, Evie sang on it too. Basically, I'd send them the tracks and say, you know, do something on this if you want. Yes. And so they, you know, they would do it and they'd send it back. And uh, I would choose the bits I liked. And then uh, that, that was it. Yeah. And um, um, Tim Palmer got involved towards the very end of it. Um, again, I was sending him stuff as I was doing it. And so he would make comments as well as going along. And then when it came time to mix it, I went to Austin, Texas, where Tim lives now, and uh, mixed it with him. So, you know, that was something we did together. But uh, most... That album was done in isolation, and that isn't necessarily a very healthy way to do things, to be honest. You know, because um, a lot—I I don't know—but but it, it sometimes you can get lost in detail. Yes, 
Well, it was interesting because I always remember I love those kind of rock documentaries and hearing about the first Black Sabbath album where I think they sort of recorded the whole thing in probably an afternoon. It's like, well, we'd been playing it live for years, so we knew yeah. what we had to do. We'd worked it in front of the crowds for, you know, years before we got signed. So, and you had that rawness, and I guess that helps an awful lot to sort of... Yeah, well, that's, that's the point I was making about God's Own Medicine was, you know, we recorded that very quickly comparatively um, because... We've been out playing it live, you know. Whereas um, another fall from grace, we, we hadn't been playing those songs live, so it was a case of. And I think the thing is, one of the things that you do now, the way that we record, um, in the old days, used to do demos, and then the band would, you know, I would do demos, uh, record demos on a porter studio, take them to the band, they'd learn the song, we we play it, um, rehearse it, and play it in rehearsals. And then do a demo, a band demo. So you'd have these points of reference all the way, all along the the line. So part of the process was honing the song as you were, you know, developing it with the with the band. Um, that that doesn't happen now with the with the, with the digital d- domain because you, you you know you, you your options or you don't have to make your choices until very 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 much much later in the process. So you don't do the demos because what what you start working on ends up evolving into what you know what becomes the finished master. Yes. Yeah. Which is a totally so you know for instance, I've got I've got no real demos of the last few albums because what ended up being my starting point I, I ended up working on and developing until it became you know how it ended. Absolutely. And also, I mean, one thing that you, you kind of mentioned a bit earlier, and one thing that I'd realised trip an awful lot of bands up is the admin and the administration and the famous publishing rights. How did you navigate with that? Because when you said the band had fantastic, you know, huge debts, I was thinking, wow, you know, but you had huge sales, huge tours. How did, how did all that kind of slip away? Well, we were signed to a record deal with Phonogram and obviously... Everything that was spent on our behalf got put on our account, and you know you have to you you have to pay that back before you start earning royalties. And uh, you know we got advances, we, and also bad manage bad manager managerial decisions along the way. We also did tours very very extravagantly. So whilst we were you know selling out Wembley Arena and Birmingham NEC, we were we were losing money on those tours which were mostly subsidized by the record label. American tours, for instance, you know, we, we, we never got big in America, so American tours always lost money, which record company covered. So that gets added to your account, you know. So um, the debts that the band had, when I was talking about that earlier on, were basically the, the, the main one was a merchandise advance that we, we, t- we took, I think, in something like, to uh, 1990 and um, then the band as it was split up and over the course of the next 18 months Craig left as well, Simon had left and then Mick um, he, he was still in the band but he didn't want to be part of the band company anymore so I was left with that debt you know. so it was a debt that needed to be paid off I mean, I could have walked away from it, you know, and just declared bankruptcy and, and, you know, sorry, but you're not going to get your money. But 
I just figured that if I wanted to carry on in the music business, that it's not a, it's not wise to 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 leave debts and have enemies. Yes, this is true, and obviously the legacy of the band because you you obviously you know this is your love, this is your life, mm. isn't it? To quote that seventies mm. program. So obviously you want to sort of you know keep it looking decent as much as possible and i guess yeah you... i mean you know, i am i am the curator of the mission if you if you want you know i mean i am very i i i i'm not one of these that just puts out all kinds of things just for the sake of it you know it, it's i still believe in quality control um there have been some mistakes along the way of course <laughs> uh but but generally you know i you know i like the idea that what we what goes out under the band's name is we have a uh, at least a degree of control over, and uh, and it's decent quality stuff, you know. Yes, and obviously, I mean, when you look back on that that kind of period, which which is the sort of album or that you know years that you think, my God, that was just absolutely amazing, perfect, you know. And I just wonder which were the ones where you think, yeah, that was they, they were the slightly lost years. <laughs> well. Um... I mean, the, the the first couple of years were really great and exciting. It was all kind of new, you know, the whole life of, you know, rubbing shoulders with people like, you know, Led Zeppelin and, and um, Iggy Pop and, as I say, all that stuff. It was really, wow, you know. Um, I'm, I remember going to see Iggy Pop at uh, Brixton Academy and I was waiting with, the, you know, a crowd of people outside the dressing room um, after the show and then a security guy came out and he just said, Wayne, come it was like, you know, I walked past everybody else. It's like, what is this cool? And then uh, walked into the dressing room and it was just, it was just Iggy with a dressing gown on with a monogrammed gym and uh, Chrissy Hind and um, Iggy's wife at the time. And it was just us in the dressing room. And I was thinking, God, you know, what am I doing here? This is me, you know, little me. I mean, you know, with these famous people and, um, it was like, wow, you know, it was like, it, it did cross my mind. But then the next day, the Melody Maker came out and Sounds came out with the record, uh, with the readers' polls for that year and we swept the board, you know. So it, I don't, I don't think it's something, I don't know, it's a weird thing really, David, because I don't think it's something you ever really, um, how can I say, it's, it's something, when, whilst it's going on, it's not something you sit down and, and you know, think about too much, you just, go with it you roll with it it's only really in hindsight I look back now and think wow you know yeah we we, we achieved a lot well yes you yeah. an amazing body of work and and it was there, it's there any period where you think wow that was that did get messy that was and well, but, but yeah you... i mean of course of course i mean yeah the first i was going to say the point the first couple of years were really exciting but after that it became uh, I think I think we we lost the fun of it a little bit. I think by the time we were doing Carved in Sand, we kind of lost the fun. We, we become a big band. The stakes were higher. We weren't the friends. We weren't the gang that we were at the you know at the beginning of it. Um, and it be, it became something else, you know. And I think we started taking ourselves too seriously, which you know is another. Uh, easy thing to do after a while, I think, in that situation. Um, 
Because you had a you had a weird relationship with the a lot of the music papers, didn't you as well? Um, yeah, we did. I mean, they loved to sorry about this. They loved to write about us, but uh, they didn't always write nice stuff. No, I mean the enemy. I could imagine the enemy because I though I bought it. I can't remember what their relationship with you like, but I know that they could be very sort of. Oh, they were awful. <laughs> I mean, you know, they. I mean, there's. Uh, I can tell you a few things about them i mean they came out to prague one time we were in prague and they put me and craig on the front cover <clears throat> of um the next uh, the following week's issue and it's a uh, picture of craig and i and it said the mission britain's stupidest band <laughs> was it yeah, what, so, so I, I i i had that framed in my office for a while I yes i mean did you feel like my god what have we done we haven't done anything wrong but why you know i mean why did not they... really i didn't i didn't really care you know i mean the fact that we were on the front cover of the enemy was you know was was i remember i remember a front cover of the enemy in the 70s with freddie mercury yes uh is, is, this, is man... this man a prat prat yeah right <laughs> and, and i think well that that you know that says a lot more to me about Freddie Mercury, uh, where Freddie Mercury is, than it does about the enemy. I mean, the you know the enemy champions. We were never a darling of the alternate alternative scene. We never, we ne the enemy never liked us, and we were ne we we never did a John Peel session. The mission, um, they, he never liked us from from day one. You know, so we were never um, that 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 area. We were never um, in favour, which is fine. I don't. I've got no problem with that. As I said to you before, we were from the beginning. We wanted to go out there and compete with the big boys. Yes. We wanted. Yes. We wanted to be, you know, in but there the, having chart hits and stuff. But the mission did get into the the John Peel Festive Fifty quite a few times, didn't it? It's obviously. Yeah, because that's that's voted. That's voted by fans. The fans. Yes, I know. Well, this is this is where you were. It was, you know, there was a whole. Yeah, but what... John Peel never played us. I, I, you know, no. through choice, he never, we, he, he never, um, we never did a session for him. And even though you had that Liverpool connection, which is shocking, really. Yeah, I mean, well, not really. I, I just think, you know, I, our whole aesthetic was completely against Peelys. Yes, this is true, actually. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, you know, I, th I think the fact that we were so, you know, openly ambitious uh, at a time when it was uncool to be openly ambitious. Um, you know, there was a lot. I, I think a lot of the music press hated us because of that too. Yeah, very suspicious of us. But the eighties yeah. were always a very tricky time because you didn't just have the alternative scene. You also had that socialist, socialist workers' party, Red Wedge, and that political yeah. thing. And that was part of what killed Gary Newman. Apart from the fact that he's yeah, there. but also, I mean, the whole thing of you know, you, okay. I mean, I've all I said it again. I said this in the book. I've, I've I've always wanted to be a musician. I wanted to make music my career, you know. And and, and I know the seventies and the early eighties. It was a dirty word, you know. Career being a careerist, you know, wanted to make music a career, you know. But that's what all that's all I've ever wanted to do is make music and earn a living from doing it. So I don't I don't I've anything wrong with wanting that. 
No, absolutely. And just lastly, what would you, I mean, because you, you know, again, I, I still put you into that camp of people who, who've, who've managed to do it sort of longer than most people, and, you know, but um, what would well, you say to your 18 yeah. year old self, you know, or a, a person starting out in the, in the, you know, the musical kind of field? Well, it sounds like a cliche, but I, you know, I, I would probably say something. Trying to be, try to, you, you're going to get distracted along the way, and you're going to get, you know, waylaid and tempted by all kinds of things. But just try to be honest with yourself, you know, and 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 constantly reappraise who you are and how you are um, living your life. Um, in relation to other people and into in, in, in relation to what you're doing. But, uh, you know, just try, just try to be, I don't know. Yeah. Be honest with yourself. And did you have, was there a p- particular period where you had that kind of moment of slight clarity of thinking, actually, you know, I always remember Robert Plant once saying, this is when, um, you know, Bonham died and the band was finished. He said that was the end of innocence, you know, and he said it in a very sort of John, you know, Robert Planty sort of way, which was quite a nice <laughs> quote. And I just wonder if you also had a moment where you thought, you know, that's that kind of chapter and that person has kind of gone because I can't and I can't be that person anymore because things have happened. And I, I think I think it, I think it was around um, like 93 or 94 where the mission, you know, we were we were definitely on our uppers a little bit um, and we were playing smaller venues, the records weren't selling, you know, it, it was a bit of a miserable time and um, I'd just, I'd not long got married, I'd uh, we just had a kid beginning in 94 and I think it just, it, it just, you know, it, I mean, j- during the early 90s, those first few years, it just, it became clear to me that there are more important things in life than being in a band. Not necessarily making the music, but being in a band. You know, the, the making the music is still really, really important. It's still a need that I have, even at 60. Yeah. Yes. But being in a band and everything that pertains to being in a band is not important. You know, it, it, you can. It, I, I remember just thinking, you know, it's... Not a priority. Yeah. And that is going to be the last part of my interview with Wayne Hussey from The Mission. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that. So appreciative. Um, So, yes, there you go. That is it. Um, And like I said, if you want to find out any more information, there is a very good Mission website you can find and also probably on Facebook as well. And also, as I've said, probably endlessly, there is a book coming out in the next couple of weeks, which is titled Salad days and this is on omnibus press anyway this has been david eastall this has been the c86 show have a great week